I can't tell you the number of times that I have learned this in my life where you could look at somebody on the surface and think all of their categories of life seem to be awesome. They're thriving in their career. They're successful. They're healthy. They've got friends. And on the surface, it looks like life is great. And yet on the inside, they're, they're really, really struggling. And sometimes it can come out in a really acute way. So it just is the reminder that you never know what's going on with people. Hey, TDW Tribe, welcome to TDW Trends. I'm Nate Thompson. And I'm Alex Schwartz. And we are your hosts. We listen to your feedback and launch this new spinoff series dedicated to giving you quick insights on the key trends disrupting the workplace and reinventing the future of work. Whether you're a business leader navigating the new landscape, a professional trying to stay competitive, a side hustler, or a student, this podcast will deliver valuable insights, inspiration, and the edge you need. To ensure you don't miss any of our key content, find us on disruptedwork.com, where you can subscribe to our channels, access resources, discover solutions, and get in touch. Let's dive in. TDW Tribe, today we are launching our new trends format for 2023. The spirit of this is to add more value in one, two, three simple ways. Number one, create more trend episodes with actionable insights on the trends that matter most. Two, bring in expert commentary to illuminate what's happening in greater detail. And three, shorten these episodes because we know how busy you are. We hope you love it and let us know what you think. That's right. Today, we are excited to talk about mental health and psychological fitness with Dr. Karen Dahl. This trend is white hot, and there are four data points that we want to set the stage. In June of 2022, Dr. Vivek Murthy, the U.S. Surgeon General, publicly shared that the mental health crisis in our nation is real, especially for young people. We are paying a heavy price in lives lost and harmed. This is our moment to build a well-being movement founded in care, empathy, and love. We must make this a priority. Quick aside, I, I, I did have the opportunity to meet Dr. Vivek Murthy at the Wisdom 2.0 conference just before the pandemic started in March of 2020. And he is an amazing heart-centered servant leader. And he also wrote a great book called Together, which is about the importance of human connection as a way to fight off the crisis of loneliness that we are experiencing, which certainly dovetails into some of the conversation we'll be having with Karen today. Awesome. In August of 2022, we had Dr. Brad Shuck on the show to talk about his emerging research on measuring the work determinants of health. And the bottom line there is this can be measured and work is impacting our mental and physical health and well-being. A November 2022 Gallup Workplace Report titled The Economic Cost of Poor Employee Mental Health asked nearly 16,000 working Americans about their mental health associated with their jobs. Four out of 10 participants expressed negative effects on their mental health due to work. Some research is suggesting that number is as high as 50 to 80% of our workforce is struggling with these issues. And in the backdrop, all of this is happening at a time where we're experiencing historic lows in worker productivity. So Dr. Karen is a licensed psychologist, consultant, and number one international best-selling author of the book titled Building Psychological Fitness, How High Performers Achieve with Ease. She spent 25 years partnering with industry-leading organizations and coaching professionals. 
working at the intersection of personal well-being and professional development. She is committed to mental health advocacy and awareness in the workplace. Karen, it is a new era for mental health. This conversation is front page news. It's all over Main Street. Everybody's talking about it in a new way, which is very exciting. We want to thank you for joining the show. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Us too, very much so. I want to kick this off with a important resource for anybody that is feeling incredibly challenged with their mental health and they need help now. Please don't wait. There are free federal and state resources that you can use right now. One of those is www.mentalhealth.gov, where you can have a confidential conversation with trained workers who are available to talk 24 7, 365. So we just want to share that uh, before we get started. If you're in pain or at risk of self-harm in any way, please do not hesitate to reach out and get some help that you need. Karen, the statistics that Nate just shared are, are pretty staggering. We think those numbers could easily increase as people become more comfortable with these types of conversations around mental health and begin to normalize this as, as part of our humanity. How do you react to these stats? Is that what you're seeing in your work? Is there anything that's missing in those stats that people should be aware of as things take hold in 2023? The statistics are alarming, and there are increased rates of depression, suicide, addiction. And I get the question a lot, like, are they really increasing or are we just having more awareness and people having more language? And I think I think it's both. I think that people are struggling more. I think that there is the post-COVID effect. And I I really believe that the isolation and the loneliness has exacerbated and has really moved people into what we would call like the red zone uh, or the orange zone of the mental health continuum. So we all have mental health. We're not mentally healthy or not. And I think grounding in that basic awareness of when people say, do you have mental health challenges? We all have mental health challenges. Right. We don't all have diagnosable mental illness but we all deal with sadness or depression or anxiety, even if it's not a diagnosable condition. Something really important that you're saying that so, so resonates for me personally is it's like a continuum, right? Because we're, we're just moving on this continuum every day based on what's going on. Is that fair? Absolutely. Yes. So if we think of like the green zone, which would be we're thriving and flourishing, and then the mid range would be kind of the orange and yellow zone where people might be struggling or just barely surviving, or this new term that has resurfaced, languishing, where they're functioning, but they're still feeling kind of meh, or maybe their sleep their sleep has been disrupted, or they're not as effective as usual. And then the red zone, you know, would be people that are really struggling with, maybe with mental illness that hasn't yet been treated. So there are plenty of people with a diagnosed mental illness that have successfully treated it and are thriving and in the green zone. And you've been talking about this in your work as, as a spectrum of mental health, which I think is a really nice way to codify it for people and make sense. Now, in what you're talking about in the workplace today, where do you see most people on that spectrum? Uh, I, I usually will start a workshop and asking people to identify where they are landing on that, that continuum. So the continuum will identify specific themes and categories like your mood, your sense of self, your basic health habits, your nutrition, your level of activity. Uh, and I would say the majority are in the orange and yellow zone. And it's dynamic and fluid. 
we we shift. Last week, I might have felt more in the yellow zone. This week, I might feel more in the green zone. Uh, so ideally, of course, we want to prevent people from moving into the red zone. And we want to have people experience agency and understand that there are some things that they can do to enhance their well-being and mental health to try and move into the green zone. So I like the continuum because it it allows us to map against something, have some language, take inventory, and therefore then identify the types and level of intervention we might need. Is there a difference between the terms mental health and mental illness? Yes. So we all have mental health and we all have physical health. So I'm mostly physically healthy. I don't have any sort of a disease or a chronic illness, yet I have ailments. My knee hurts. I'm 50 years old. I get sore sometimes. <laughs> uh, and same, you know, same with mental health. Uh, mental illness is basically the DSM is the diagnostic manual that lists conditions and mental illness. And if you meet the criteria for a certain illness, so in other words, the tipping factors is usually how much is it impacting your life. So if you're experiencing anxiety and it's significantly impairing you and impacting your daily life, then we want to look at diagnosable mental illness. Okay, I can I nerd out on this even more? And I'm going to overlay another tool that I know you've seen, Karen. I'm sure you've seen it. It's called the Wheel of Life. And the Wheel of Life is like a pie. And there's slices of the pie and everybody has these different sections of their life. And family is one of them. Finance is one of them. Work, career is one of them. And you have all these things. Is it possible? to be in the green zone in several areas of your life, but in terms of mental health, maybe one area is really challenging for you. Is that even possible? Oh, absolutely. And that tool can be useful just to kind of take a measurement of what is my life satisfaction in each of these categories of life. And if you give yourself a rating on a one to 10 scale and you rate yourself a two in one particular area, you can decide, is this something that I need to attend to and is there something I can do about this? So as you know, always mental health is about identifying which elements we can control and which we cannot control. And in, in terms of your question, I can't tell you the number of times that I have learned this in my life where you could look at somebody on the surface and think all of their categories of life seem to be awesome. They're thriving in their career. They're successful. They're healthy, they've got friends, and on the surface, it looks like life is great. And yet, on the inside, they're, they're really, really struggling. And sometimes it can come out in a really acute way. So it just is the reminder that you never know what's going on with people. So I love that, that we just had that little impromptu conversation about the wheel of life overlaying mental health, because sometimes it's hard to, to have words for I'm feeling really good over here. Mentally, I feel great over here. But over here, I'm in a tough place. And I think a really common example of that is, let's say someone is, their career is growing by leaps and bounds. They've been promoted, promoted, promoted. They're working their tails off. You know, they're 80-hour weeks. And on the career side, they are winning. But then you go into their personal life and they're struggling with a divorce. And they're struggling to have a relationship with their kids because they've been over-invested into work and not enough investment into their personal life. That would be a good example of finding that kind of, oh, okay, so I need to focus here. And I've always felt like the wheel of life is good for that. Shifting the conversation a little bit around the idea of stigma and self-care. The pandemic put tremendous pressure on us. 
And there is a stacking effect that happens in the pandemic where there's just so much pressure and so many stressors, everybody eventually hits a tipping point. My question is, it seems like mental health has left the stigma station and the train is now moving into self-care, which I love this language shift. Self-care is good. Self-care is healthy. And we're having this conversation, I think, like as normal as coaching or training. Hey, I'm getting coaching. Hey, I'm getting training. Hey, I'm getting therapy. And it's good. We just put it all into self-care. Is that fair to say now we're normalizing it in that way? I hope that we are. Has the train left the station? I don't know. Has it? I, I, I still see a lot of stigma and see a lot of people suffering in silence. They are afraid to speak up because they think everyone, they think they're the only one struggling. Mm. I heard this, I don't know, hundreds of times during COVID from coaching clients, feeling like they're the only one. Everybody else kind of looks like they're killing it. And I think that's been really pervasive. We've made so much progress. I mean, we have, there are so many more conversations. There's much more openness. Yet, I still field a lot of phone calls from people who don't know where to go for help. And they don't know who else to call, but they're asking for a friend. And the other thing is, you know, plenty of people that on the surface feel like their lives are great and they're still have emotional distress. And then they feel badly about the emotional distress. Shame. Yeah, I shouldn't feel I like shouldn't be feeling other people have it worse. Yeah. How much of that is what I'm going to put under the label of my so-called Instagrammable life? Yes. Is that pressure? to look like you have it together, is that higher now than it's ever been? I have to think with social media, it must be because highlight reels are so visible and accessible and constant. And, and I think it would be really challenging to be a teenager right now, in particular. I mean, I feel that and I'm a middle-aged woman. I can't imagine how teenagers who don't have the the life experience and the seasoning and the brain development, you know, that, that adults do to, to understand that it's just an image. It's not real. Not real. It's, it's like, ironic because there is also at the same time, a lot more tools and conversation around personal growth than there's ever been publicly. And so many leaders in the personal growth field who are lauded in the media and who are constantly being, you know, reposted, whose constant is being lifted up. So you have this, this irony, which is we're all talking about personal growth, and yet we don't want to talk about vulnerability. What's that about? That's, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Well, I think, to be totally honest, I think there, there is more awareness about the vulnerability, yet it's still, from my experience in the workplace, it's still scripted vulnerability. Mm. when it is it's something that's rehearsed and i don't believe we need to run around and disclose everything to each other we don't disclose but what about like the moments that you have a raw emotion and you cry at work or like these moments are still they still scare people but i think that's the real vulnerability not let me tell you about a mistake that i made that i've have prepared to demonstrate my vulnerability Versus those real moments of understanding that, you know, I'm, I'm really struggling right now. I have kids at home or my wife is sick or, or whatnot. I think revealing more of the messiness, I think, is uh, it's trust building 
Yes. And it fosters connection. And we, that's what we need right now. That is the million dollar word. And I think that is the shift. That's the paradigm shift that's going to fundamentally change the corporation. When leaders, when employees start to embrace the messy and go, hey, our humanity isn't all buttoned up. It's just not. And when people are going through change, massive change, intersectional, stacked, macro change, there is going to be messy and that's okay. And we're going to put some guardrails up and build some safety and create a container where we can move through this together. But it's not going to be all buttoned up. Just like your show says. <laughs> disruption. 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 And even positive change is disruptive. Good change is disruptive. Hopeful change is disruptive. It's disorienting to us. So let's bring this back to the workplace for a second, because you talked about the fact earlier that you don't feel that it is fully safe to have these conversations, that the stigma is still there. So how do leaders and employees make it feel safe and make it more normal? Now, you're a psychologist. Leaders and managers are not. And their incentives typically skew more toward workforce productivity versus workforce well-being, which is something that you've discussed. So how does a prioritization of mental health and the conversation around mental health happen in a positive way inside the corporation? That is the million dollar question. Here are my thoughts about it. I think there's shared accountability and it has to be addressed at several levels. So organizations need to have infrastructure that is going to create healthy conditions for people to succeed. And most specifically, looking at demand capacity and resource and making sure that people aren't overworked. Managers have the responsibility to do their best to create the conditions for their the employees to thrive. And then employees have the responsibility to manage their own mental health. So managers do not need to be therapists. They do not need to have all the answers. So uh, I think the power of the idea of accompaniment is really important. And accompaniment basically is this idea that we, we walk alongside with each other on the journey and we partner and support people in a way that they feel valued and that they matter and that they're cared for. And we don't have to have the answers. Mm. How does this manifest in your work and, and where does it take flight and where do you meet a lot of resistance still? Um, so I think it's all about humanizing the workplace. Love that. Where I meet resistance is Managers will sometimes look to the leadership and say they're putting too many demands on us. Employees will look to management. And so there's sort of a, a deflection of accountability. And I, I, where I face resistance is I think a lot of organizations are saying the right things and they're saying they're committed. I also hear questions of, well, what's the one thing that we can do to help employee mental health? And it's, it's the wrong question because there isn't one thing. It's going to require organic bottom-up change and it's going to require top-down change and that will organizations need to commit to spending the money and the time and the investment and to make it a strategic priority or it won't happen. Yeah, I think that question is a habituated response of efficiency inside of a corporation. Alex and I have both spent decades in that space and one of the most common things is what's the one thing we can do because we need to be efficient because we have 30 other priorities 
we don't have the bandwidth to take on some big initiative. So what's the one thing we can do is just like habituate. Yeah. Optimization. Yes. How do we optimize? Efficiency. Let's go. <laughs> and I, I get it. I, I mean, I understand. I have that kind of personality too. So I, it resonates. Yet sometimes more doing is not the answer. And we need to figure out how to just create a little more space. And I want to flip this conversation now, Karen, to toxicity. We just talked about really healthy stuff. And that's great. And we love that. Alex and I are huge fans of that side. But there's also another side of the workplace, which is toxicity, a toxic workplace. There are toxic people in workplaces, toxic cultures. What are some of those behaviors that you're seeing out there? Well, we call those negative work behaviors. And when we face negative work behaviors, when I'm working with my clients or difficult people, we, we call them learning partners. Because mm. it's code, <laughs> code for... Other words that we could use. <laughs> Code for let's <laughs> let's deal with this monster at work. <laughs> um, okay, so honestly, I think sometimes it's the quiet toxicity that can be damaging and unvalidating. So it's kind of like a, a gaslighting version of communication where where workloads are excessive and not reasonable, and when employees speak up about it it's kind of put back on them. Like, what? This is, this is reasonable. And there's, there becomes like a miscalibration. Mm-hmm. And then employees think that somehow they're flawed when really, I mean, this is what burnout is overwork. And burnout is usually an infrastructure problem. It's not a human problem. It's usually more is being asked than, is, than the person is capable of providing without rest and recovery. So toxic work behaviors can even, can just simply be not recognizing the truth of what's there and not acknowledging it. Don't you think that's kind of the fundamental basis of this conversation of the balance of power has shifted? So for so long, the corporation has gone, hey, if you want to be here, great. If you don't, see you later. Get in, fit in, fall in line. We control the cards. We have all the power. And if anyone spoke up against that, largely that person was told, hey, be careful. <laughs> if you don't like this, you know where the door is. And now we've entered this space of it's not okay. The conditions here are not okay. I'm looking for something better, not only for me, but for my family, for our quality of life. This is not okay. And I kind of feel like that's sort of the fundamental honesty that's starting to shift the balance. And, and, and anyone can talk about something, and that's not going to change as much as when people walk. So when you see millions of people per month voluntarily quitting over a period of years, there's something undeniable. So do you think that's a fair assessment of the balance of power that's shifted? I do. And, and I think the awareness is people are feeling empowered. We, I mean, we always had that choice. Yes. We had that option to say, this isn't okay with me. I'm going to go work somewhere else. But yes, now I think people are giving themselves more permission. And there still will be plenty of organizations that will say, fall in line, do what we say, butts in seats. And they can do that. It's probably going to come at a cost to them. And they're going to probably lose people. But there still will be companies that do that. But remembering that, let's acknowledge the privilege concept that some people have more privilege than others to make that choice. Because I always want to think that we have choices, yet at the same time, recognize that some people have more limited choices. 
So it's, you know, easy maybe for me to say, well, just go work somewhere else. Um, when somebody's working three jobs, trying to support their family, they may not have as many choices. But I do think that the movement of empowerment is healthy. I want to dive into your new book, Building Psychological Fitness. So Karen, what is psychological fitness and how do we build it? That's a big, big question. So basically, it's just looking at our, our overall well-being and the, the healthiness of our thinking and our experience with emotion and our physical health, how we deal with interpersonal relationships, how we manage conflict. So it's just overall psychological health. Got it. And who is the book intended for? Who's going to get the most benefit? So the, the subtitle is How High Performers Achieve with Ease. So I would say I kind of, I wrote it with the audience of professionals who have demanding lives. That tends to be who I work with. So I'm speaking to them. Yet really, again, like since we all have mental health, all these mental health practices apply to anybody. So how I came up with the subtitle is I did a lot of book interviews and trying to understand what are people's challenges with the mental health? What are their challenges in the workplace? What do they want? What do they need? And I was trying to get them to use their language so that my the title of my book would resonate with them. And the, what I kept hearing was this, this um, notion of people wanting equanimity and wanting to feel less distress. I had 27 interviews in a row after 30 minutes of talking to people, 27 people landed on this comment exactly, which was, I just want to feel at ease. Mm. So people are stressed out. They are wanting relief. So that's who I wrote it for. Fantastic. And you've also stood up a LinkedIn learning program, which is very cool. Now, is that sharing similar insights to what you've got in the book? Is that a different bent to that? What are, what are some of the things that people can find in your LinkedIn course? Uh, overlapping ideas for sure, but just very bite-sized. So each module is super short. The way that they create most of those courses is they're, they're targeting really busy professionals who don't have a lot of time. So we try to make it as concise and succinct as possible. So Karen, if you could pick just one thing to fix stress for everybody, just kidding, that was a joke. Um, <laughs> if there are a few things that stand out that have been most resonant with your client base, with people that have taken the LinkedIn course, with people that have been reading the book as tools, which I know you have a lot in your tool belt to help in this moment with stress, tension, and overwhelm, which seem to be the most widely impactful with the audience that you've been engaging? I would say uh, one is upgrading our relationship with stress and finding a, a healthier way to interpret stress because what we call stress matters. If I tell myself I'm panicking, I am telling my system to panic and generate more negative emotion. If my nervous system is activated and instead I say, oh, I'm alert, that messaging makes a difference. Well, I think that can be, you know, we see things as we are, not as they are. So anything around upgrading our mental models, working on cognitive reframing, 
um, so that our perceptions are healthier or more right-sized. Uh, not to share an overuse thing, but it really is powerful and so accessible and easy, but the, just understanding how to calm through breath work. It works like you actually can calm your body and your mind down through practicing breath work. The third thing that I would say is pro-social behavior. So pro-social behavior is any kind of kindness towards others, any type, kind of expressing gratitude towards others. I love Ted Lasso. So good. And he's so good. And just the reminder of like, I appreciate you telling people that we appreciate them is so powerful and simple. It's just a matter of remembering to do it. So pro-social behavior, doing kind things for others enhances our own well-being. It's like we fill our bucket and we fill their bucket. It's just a win-win. Part of the doing kind things for others, which I've learned over the years, is it takes you out of self. It takes you out of the storm cloud of your problem and allows you to focus on something else. So not only is it building self-esteem through esteemable acts, it's a welcome distraction to your own distress. Wow, that was beautifully put. What amazing insight. <laughs> oh, Alex, I love it. I just I blacked it. out. What did I say? <laughs> well, it is, it's so true. And when we get, um, we get into uh, a trap of anxiety or depression or dark thinking or feeling hopeless or helpless, at that time, the last person we should be listening to is ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that kind of an, an action or practice can get us out of ourselves. So I am thankful that you highlighted that. Thanks. I, I think the self-talk thing, if I could just speak for a quick moment and respond to that, I think that is also so helpful, whether in your self-talk, you are stating an affirmation that creates compassion for yourself. I had someone tell me when I was in early sobriety, think about taking care of yourself as if you were holding the hand of the five or six-year-old version of yourself. What would you say to him? How would you comfort him? And I thought that was a very simple and lovely frame. And at other times, just saying no or stop when those negative thoughts come up. What are some phrases that you use or you advocate using specifically for self-talk? Um, this is not probably clinically advisable, but how you said use the word stop. I use the word shut up. Mm -hmm. in my head like just disrupt that just that's just you doing this thing that you do so just shut up the inner critic shut that little voice up and shine the flashlight somewhere else i think what you two are talking about is a secret to life i genuinely deeply with every fiber of my body believe the internal conversation if you can start to understand that and then start to work with it like a dance yes that internal conversation is coming up i hear you internal conversation and I'm choosing something else, right? Just that dance of the change, the shift that I don't have to stay in this place. I don't have to be stuck anymore. For me was like lights on. It fundamentally changed how I was moving through the world. And I love that you two just highlighted that. So everyone right there is secret of life, starting to manage your internal conversation. Nate's been using this shut up tool, but just to me, it's strange. <laughs> I actually use a different language pattern. I'll share mine. I say, I hear you, ego, or whatever is going on inside of me. I hear you. And my next word is and, 
And then I say where I actually want to go instead of staying in the thing. I have no idea if that's clinical anything, but that works for me just using that language pattern. I think that would be what the loving kindness people would say is, okay, I hear you, my friend. And yeah. now we're going to go do this. That, that's, <laughs> now that's, I'm going probably to more, that's probably more advisable. But regardless, nonetheless, I think it, this is like the cornerstone of, of personal development is understanding like that power of the pause after stimulus and before the response. We can slow it down and have healthy detachment and decide how we're going to respond. It's not easy, yet it is kind of simple. So I think that's a great reminder. Okay, let me ask you about burnout. You have a very interesting frame around burnout. And it's about this idea of a capacity imbalance, right? And so we want to know more about that, but we specifically want you to tell us also about boundary setting because those things are always playing together. Burnout, capacity imbalance. Do I have boundaries? Are there no boundaries? What's going on? So will you just share more about that? So yeah, I mean, burnout is overwork without proper rest and recovery. And many workplaces are set up to take as much from people as they're willing to give. Yeah. And therefore, unfortunately, you know, it often can fall on a manager or an employee to set those boundaries and say, here's what I'm capable and here's what here's what's not okay with me, which is really hard, really challenging to push back because that's a risk. We don't want that to affect our performance. I like the idea, the model of energy management in talking about burnout because, you know, it's that that model that we only have so much resource, we only have so much fuel in the tank in the categories of energy, so physical, uh, emotional, cognitive, and let's say spiritual. And once we deplete the supply, we have a human limitation that we absolutely have to replenish it or like we will die. If we don't rest and sleep, we will die. It's just human limitation that we all have. So when we move into burnout, often it's, it's people expecting more from themselves than is humanly possible without physical or mental well-being costs. And so getting a better awareness of first of all, giving ourselves permission to know, oh, I, I actually can't work 20 hours in a day, or this is going to come at a significant cost. And there's no workaround there. We can't optimize for that. We can't undo overwork. Burn the candle at both ends. Yeah. And yet we know now that the brain is not effective, is not as, as effective without rest and recovery. So all of those energy categories are aligned. So. Burnout is not, and it's not like a matter of fault or blame. It's just a matter of looking at all the conditions. What is the individual doing? What is okay with them? Understanding what their capacities and limitations are. And then organizations having the structure so that they're not sucking the life out of people. Karen, what brought you to this work? You don't end up in this work by accident. There's something about your path, your story, your journey that brought you to this work. So what brought me to psychology really is a deep, deep interest in understanding people and human dynamics. Mm. And I love connecting with people. And it's a privilege, you know, people invite you into their, their lives and it's never lost on me how much courage that takes. And so I am so grateful for the work that I get to do. Mm. Your compassion for people, your passion for this work, all speak to just the 
uh, incredible uh, point of view and, and work that you're doing in this space, Karen. And it's such a pleasure to talk to you today and to have you on the show. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I appreciate you guys. Thank you for listening and joining us on this journey. In a world where attention is scarce and content is abundant, it means a lot. To learn more about this episode, go to disruptedwork.com where you can subscribe to our channels, find show notes and key details about our guests, the episode and connect with us. Our website also contains additional resources for learning, including our future of work mindset model and action plan. You know someone who would appreciate this episode? To help others thrive in the future of work, spread the word by rating and reviewing the podcast and sharing favorite episodes with the people you care about. Disrupt yourself and own your future. Thank you.